The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, good morning. It's nice to be back on Tuesday morning and a little unusual for me because I was just teaching retreat at our retreat center at IRC. And um, so a little bit still in the retreat feeling. And um, um, one of the uh, teachings I wanted to offer and share is uh, so, somewhat of a fame, maybe it's one of the most famous um, places where the Buddha gives um, meditation instruction. And it's like, it's like the, probably the most, is that a word, pithy or brief pithy and profound um, teaching or pointing out instruction in, in, in one way. I mean, there are many, many profound teachings of the Buddha. But in this story, um, and I'm paraphrasing, a person uh, called Bahia Bahia is um, traveling and he's kind of uh, going from one town to to another faraway town. And somehow his his path crosses with the Buddha. And he has this urgency to him and he he kind of, you know, f- wrangles his way close to the Buddha, and he and he asks him, "Can you can you give me um, a brief, <laughs> you know, really important teaching?" <laughs> and, I, and the Buddha was doing something and with his community, and not and not, you know, it wasn't the right time. And he said, uh, "Baia, uh, I'd love to help you, but it's not the right time right now." And um, in the in the Buddhist tradition, at least, a lot of these stories um, the, the person who is the persistent student and the persistent questioner uh, needs to ask three times. You know, and if you really if you really want something, if you really um, are intent on on, on get you know on getting this information or, or or getting something from a from a teacher or a meditation master or from the Buddha, you have to ask three times. So anyway, but yeah, I don't know if he knows this this rule or not. But he asks again. He said, "I I really need I really need a teaching right now. I just just give me just give me the you know give me the the jewel the gem the most important thing because I've got to get going and I'm you know." And the Buddha says, you know, not now. It's not a good time. I'm busy. You know? And then for a third time, Bahia asks. And then the third time, the Buddha says, okay. And, um, and so the Buddha gives this teaching. And um, so, so I thought I would just read it. It's very, it's very brief. And... Um, so these are the Buddha's instructions to Bahia. And the Buddha says, Bahia, this is how you should train yourself. Whenever you see a form, simply see. Whenever you hear a sound, simply hear. Whenever you taste a flavor, simply taste. Whenever you feel a sensation, simply feel. Whenever a thought arises, let it be simply a thought. Then you will not exist. Whenever you do not exist, you will not be found in this world, another world, or in between. This is the end of suffering.
And as the story goes, Bahia heard this teaching and was awakened. Um, and then, sadly, um, a few hours later, died in a road accident. And, you know, so it was, it was good that he got this, you know, a direct pointing, this direct teaching, and was able to somehow that, you know, he was, he was able to um, open his mind, open his heart, in the, in, the, in, the, in the life that he had left. Um, so this idea, to, to this, this radical um, simplicity, um, and I, I connect this way of being to, um, of course, meditation practice and retreat practice where um, we are in some ways secluded from our everyday life and in this container, in this environment where we're just, just meditating, just sitting and walking and, and, and eating simple food and we're not connected to the world through the internet and all our usual um, signposts of our life. And it's, and it's a way of um, just letting go more and more and more, letting go of what's extra. Um, on our retreat, it was raining a lot. You know, it was Friday, Friday, Saturday. Um, and there's something so wonderful about being inside and hearing the, hearing the rain and uh, seeing the fog and the, this, the, the mood that that creates. And I, uh, I was sharing a poem that I, I think I've shared here too about... Um, which, which for me echoes this teaching to Bahia. It's this uh, poem by Dogen about uh, just, and he says, just listening um, without extra mind that grasps the jewel-like raindrops dripping from the eaves are myself. You know, it's like it's just listening, just feeling, just seeing. Um, when we're not grasping, when the mind is not reaching forward, the mind is not pushing away, um, the boundaries between self and other, the boundaries between the self, self and the world begin to soften, begin to shift. Um, and, um, you know, so, so in the poetry, of, of, of that image, the raindrops become myself. Um, the Buddha is sort of giving it in the language of absence. When the mind is not grasping, when the heart is not grasping, it's not creating a separate you, a separate self. You know, so he says, you do not exist. Another way of saying that is everything is you, you know, Everything is you. Everything is confirming who and what we are. So um, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to suffer. We don't have to contract around things because um, we're, we're touching into our own vastness. You know, so from my perspective, they're saying the same things. And sometimes the language of absence is very helpful. You know, if I feel very self-conscious or, or very self-absorbed or self-centered in a way, um, it's helpful to be reminded of the fiction, you know, of that idea of self. Not that, not that we don't have a, a self, not that we don't need, a, you know, the perspective of self and ego, but uh, you know, can we hold it lightly? Um, do we need to take it so seriously and so personally? So sometimes that cutting through of the Buddha, there, there is no you, um, is very helpful. And then sometimes um, uh, this idea that everything and everyone in this world is myself. 
is opens the heart in this wonderful way that nothing that is in this conditioned existence is alien to me. Um, I can be at home in the world. Um, and there's something about that that for me invites this kind of relationship and engagement with the world, um, this non-separation. And as we meditate, as we practice, we may have moments when, yes, the raindrops feel like myself or the sun, you know, just coming out into the sunshine uh, on, the, on the last day of our retreat on, sun, on Sunday. The sky was so blue and it was just so crisp and to stand in the sun. And it just, it was like the heat of the sun just saturated the whole being, the whole body. And it felt like, yeah, this is, there's no separation here. I am this warmth. I am this heat. You know, so delicious. Um, so there can be moments like that. Um, and we can become, and I think an important part of practice is not just chasing those moments where non-separation uh, feels available and easy and delicious as much as we enjoy those moments, but is endeavoring to see the, the non-separation in each moment. You know, so what is it like to be non-separate what is it like to, for the sound of the leaf blower to be myself? You know, that's a little, that's like, well, <laughs> you know, it's, it, um, I think that's less intuitive to us. What is it like for some difficult emotion, uh, sadness, fear, anger? What is it like for that to also be myself? Um, and to be willing to say, this is me too. This is me in this moment. Um, that it's not so much about the particular flavor of the moment, but it's about realizing the impermanence, the emptiness, the non-separation of each moment. And, and somehow tuning into a way of being that doesn't... Um, so much prefer one moment to another. Although, of course, we'll have preferences. Um, but that's like, that's valuing each moment, that's opening to each moment. Um, I've talked about that, that poem of each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. So when we meditate, or when we're doing something like an extended period of meditation, like a half-day sitting or one-day sitting or multiple-day meditation retreat, we really get to see um, how moment by moment we're changing, things are changing, and how we relate to it, how we react to it. Some things we like, some things we don't like, and it's this flow. And maybe the request of practice is somehow to open to each moment and the flavor, the unique flavor of each moment. Um, and, and we get to see how challenging that can be. It's like, you know, so this, so the Buddha's pointing out instruction, the Buddha's teaching to Bahia, simply to see, simply to hear, simply to taste. It's like just feeling, just seeing without anything extra. In one way, it's so simple. But in another way, it, it, it challenges our conditioning around um, uh, projecting our own thoughts, um, interpreting experience, explaining, evaluating. And this is what our minds do all the time. So, um, and I think one of the reasons that it's so challenging to stay in that simplicity is that we do um, perceive impermanence. We do perceive the sort of radical um, unpredictability and um, uncertainty, the instability 
of, of, of things. And the mind very quickly uh, goes to this place where we project our thinking. We project a sense of, of certain, I mean, this is what planning is. You know, often in meditation, we're working with the planning mind, which is thinking about the future and trying to kind of, you know, put this structure. You know, we don't know what's going to happen, but we really want to know and we really want to <laughs> make it go the way we want it to go. And so this, we're kind of projecting the, the thinking mind onto this blank screen called the future. Um, we, we, we're, we're amazing in that we even do that to the past, you know, creating better pasts <laughs> in some way or um, again and again going over something in the past and kind of, is there some way this could be a little different than you know, happened in the past? And so um, part of the really important path part of the, of the meditative path is getting very familiar with the characteristic ways that I um, somehow apply some kind of filter between myself and this moment. Um, and I think we all do it uh, in in ways that are unique to us, unique to our circumstances, our personality, our conditioning, our history. And then the Buddha suggests that there are some um, themes, you know, some themes of uh, filtering, some themes of the ways that the mind gets in between ourselves and the moment. And so, I think the most uh, helpful of, of, of the ways that, that, that the Buddha teaches that is, is in the teaching of the five hindrances. You know, and it's something we talk about a lot. And, um, but, and which, which are um, sensual desire. And then the other side of this wanting is the aversion. I don't want it. You know, um, ill will, aversion, anger, resistance. So is that I want it, grasping for it, pushing it away. Those are the first two. And then there's um, anxiety and restlessness on one side. And then this fatigue and dullness, sometimes called sloth and torpor. So these next two have to do with the energy. Either the energy is out of balance as it's too up, or it's like really sinking and it's really... Uh, um, Sometimes it's called laziness, so that's not, you know, it's like dullness or something. And then the fifth hindrance is doubt. Why am I doing this? Why am I here? I'm never going to get this, or this doesn't really matter, or, you know, doubt. And so these five hindrances are said to be the very things that keep us from. Um, from this simple way of being. It's, it's the very things that keep us from uh, uh, entering into the stream of awareness and non-separation. So they're very um, useful to internalize at least what they are because when we can spot that a hindrance has arisen, um, and often there'll be multiple of these in present, you know, all the time. I mean, we can see them in meditation. We tend not to see them as as much in everyday life. When we can see a hindrance, it's not a hindrance. You know, so it's not like there's something about desire or there's something about aversion or anxiety or fatigue or doubt that inherently is some big problem. It's that these tend to fool us. And when these arise, they seduce us in some way that the, um, they're like, you know, we're caught in this self-centered dream. And we're caught in that dream 
It's the dream of the self. It's the dream of the separate self. It's the dream of permanence. It's, it's not only that there's wanting this really great dinner that I know I'm going to have, but there's a, it's, it's me. I'm going to be the one who eats it. I'm going to be the one who, you know, and it's, so it reinforces that sense of separation. But when we see it, when we can notice a hindrance, wow, okay, desire is present, or aversion, or anxiety is here, or doubt. When we see it, it's just something, it's, it's just folded into the practice. It's just part of our mindfulness practice. And it's possible to just be wanting, just be desiring, just be feeling irritation, just be feeling sadness, just to be um, so present for the anxiety, the restlessness, the fear, that it's not like it disappears from our life, but it disappears into our life. It's like that's what's happening. And there's so much acceptance and so much understanding of this is how it is right now. That, um, as the Buddha says to Bahia, there's no me. There's just, there's just anxiety. It's just what's, it's just the flavor of this moment. Um, sometimes I think about the great value of this posture and this, it's one of the things we were talking about on the retreat of the, there can be a way that the meditation posture is almost like a mountain, you know, and we become this mountain that doesn't move. You know, the mountain in, in its own way has such stability and such presence and such groundedness that no matter the weather, no matter the emotional weather passing through, the mountain is just there. And it's just, you know, whether it's sunny, whether it's cold or windy or rainy. And um, so that's one image that sometimes uh, can be helpful. Another image of, of, of sitting through a kind of uh, experience of strong hindrance, str- one of these strong dreams of the self that I like is like a wave. It's a, you know, sometimes if there's very strong emotion, very strong wanting or um, fear or panic or sadness, it's like this wave. And if we're able, if there's enough mindfulness to just hang in there with it and breathe with it and feel it, feel it in the body, it can be like this wave that, that rises and rises and increases with intensity. And we can watch it actually crest. And to be able to watch it kind of build and build and build, usually if there's not much mindfulness and you know, we're in our everyday life, we're going to do something. We're going to either act on it and act it out. And then in that way, relieve the tension or we're going to distract ourselves or um, somehow, uh, you know, some way of, of turning away or some way of, of, of uh, you know, doing something that uh, pops the, the, the balloon or something like just to stay and just stay with those feelings, stay with them in the body as they build and build and build in a non-reactive way. And in a way, the Buddha's instructions to Bahia, he's basically offering this path of non-reactivity to just feel, to just feel the, the, those emotions, that intensity, build and build and build and build and build. And then at some point, it crests. At some point, it begins to dissipate and, and falls away. Because as much as it might not feel like it in the moment, that fear is impermanent. That fear is something, is just a product of conditions that comes together and then falls away. Um, Inez Friedman, who is a dear friend and, and co-teacher on this retreat, 
um, she said something that, I guess this is a kind of a scientific understanding, but like the average emotion um, lasts for 90 seconds, you know, and, you know, in all these studies that the actual emotion itself, the actual feeling, so that wave is a 90 second wave that comes up, that builds and builds and builds, crests, and then it falls away. And when we grasp, when we get so involved in the story that we're, um, we're seduced into it, that's how we, we extend it and extend it and extend it and extend it. And so to simply feel an emotion as an emotion, it's like, you know, it's an interesting thing to, to check out. How long is it actually, is this pure experience of emotion? And then how much of it do, do I keep um, touching back into the story and just adding a little bit more, another log to that fire? And then, you know, okay, another, another 90 seconds, another 90 seconds, another. Um, so sometimes that, so if we can, if we can allow the, the wave to, to totally do what it does um, with, with as much uh, non-reactivity as is available. Sometimes there's, you know, the, you know it, it feels like we can, you know, I'm just, I'm just here and just bring it on and let it, you know, watch this movie, watch this show that the mind is doing. And sometimes the capacity for doing that is, is, is quite small and there's, there's not that availability. But um, just to have this understanding that these dreams of the self, these hindrances, are um, not personal. They're said to be universal. So every single person who's not fully awakened is in and out of these dreams of the self. And, um, you know, and so to learn what they are and to learn to bring mindfulness to them is really one of the most useful um, parts of, of, of the path. Because, you know, sometimes, you know, if when we're lucky, it can feel like, yes, the raindrops of myself, everything is myself. But then, um, if grasping mind is present, to really uh, attend to that and say, this is, this is what's happening in the moment, and there is tremendous value in being able to um, bring whatever grasping, whatever resistance that's present into awareness and can um, the, the sense of awareness just widen and widen and widen to keep including all the ways that I might resist this moment. Um, And, 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 and just also something about um, honoring how difficult it can be to have this simplicity of being that the Buddha talks about, to simply be, to just be, to simply feel, to, to simply see. Um, I, think, I think the sort of poignancy of, of that of that edge that we all kind of are on um, is expressed in this, in this, in this poem by Ryokan, which I'd like to share. And um, because as I was saying, it's like it, the instructions are very simple, but um, most of us find them quite challenging and, and how to sort of navigate that um, navigate that the ways that the mind um, doesn't want this simplicity or doesn't allow this simplicity or some way fears this simplicity um, because it opens us to the uncertainty. It opens us to the kind of truth of impermanence. So this is by the Japanese monk, beloved Japanese monk, Ryokan, 
who lived about 300 years ago and um, gave up a very high-status, famous position as the abbot of a great Zen temple to become a wandering mendicant and wandering monk and traveled and was very poor, but was able to live this very simple existence, um, foraging for food. And a lot of his poems are about either kind of playing with the village children or um, sitting in his very simple ramshackle hut, you know, lighting and it's cold outside, but he just has his blanket. He's sitting by the window and he lights a stick of incense and meditates. And, and so often the poems come out of like that mindset of, 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 his, of his meditation. Um, and one of the things that people love about Rokan is his, how real he was, how sort of earthy, how he wasn't just this idealistic and, you know, living in this fantasy world. He was really struggling and um, in and out of these dreams of the self. And when he was late in life and he was, I think in his eighties, he fell in love with a young nun. And then there, I, I don't know if they, I think they might've met once or something, but their love letters survive and have been published. And he's, he's this kind of very interesting person and so free and so himself in his, in his way. I don't think this has a title, but this is um, one of my favorites of, of Ryokan. So he says, where did my life come from? Where will it go? Meditating by the window of my tumble-down hut, I search my heart, absorbed in silence. But I search and search and still don't know where it all began. How will I ever find where it ends? Even the present moment can't be pinned down. Everything changes. Everything is empty. And in that emptiness, this I exists only for a little while. How can one say anything is or is not? Best just to hold to these little thoughts. Let things simply take their way. And so be natural and at your ease. Maybe I'll read it again. Where did my life come from? Where will it go? Meditating by the window of my tumble-down hut, I search my heart, absorbed in silence. But I search and search and still don't know where it all began. How will I ever find where it ends? Even the present moment can't be pinned down. Everything changes. Everything is empty. And in that emptiness, this I exists only for a little while. How can one say anything is or is not? Best just to hold to these little thoughts. Let things simply take their way and so be natural and at your ease. This sense of this present moment is not something that can be pinned down. It's not something that can be fixed and um, sort of uh, secured in some way, or locked, locked away, or um, you know, frozen like a photograph. It's like we can't pin down the present moment and yet there's this deep human wish to capture in some way that's why we have our phones <laughs> we can capture 
it, whatever it is. Take a picture of it. Um, and so, so the solution uh, proposed by, by this monk, this poet, is a kind of return to our naturalness, return to who we are. Let things be. Let things be as they are. They're already being as they are. And, you know, so it's like something about allowing our understandable and very human resistance to things as they are, just to fall away. You know, let things simply take their way. Just see, just hear, just be. And so be natural. And, you know, at your ease, this, this ease, which I often uh, remind myself is, is really the hallmark of the Dharma, the hallmark of, of our practice. What is it to be at ease with ourself, to be at ease in the world? Um, and then just to notice, how do I lose that ease? Where do I lose that ease? Get curious, get interested without judgment, um, without uh, criticizing oneself, but um, you know, to have this, this sort of uh, North Star or this intention that it's not that far from us, it's not that far from who we are. Um, allowing, allowing ourselves to just return to simplicity whenever we can. Um, uh, with a lot of compassion, with a lot of kindness for the ways that we complicate, you know, and the very human, very understandable ways that we um, make problems <laughs> for ourselves <laughs> and others. <laughs> So thank you very much. And we have a f- some minutes, so if anyone has some reflections on this, or comments, or questions, um, In a way, the Buddha's instructions to Baiya are like this very poetic pointing out of non-clinging. And then sometimes non-clinging is available. And sometimes, most of the time, I think, our practice is actually studying our clinging. um, Learning to bring awareness and mindfulness and compassion to all the ways we cling. And... Um, to see that that really is the practice, that really is the path. And there's something in this magic of awareness that um, little by little sort of uh, chips away at our clinging. One of the images that I love of, for, for practice is um, this way that uh, Michelangelo talked about how he sculpted and this idea of he wasn't creating the, you know, like the, the David. It's not like he was set out to sculpt David. What he actually was doing was freeing David from the stone, from the marble. You know, it was like liberating this image. Um, from this big block of marble. And so how he did it was he just took away everything that wasn't David. And then, you know, so in a way our practice is um, letting everything that's extra, everything that we don't need, that's not useful, that's not helpful, fall away. And then we're left with this magnificence, 
this essence. Um, I was talking to a friend who's Italian, and after I shared that image on the retreat, he said that there are these um, sculptures, unfinished sculptures of Michelangelo, that are like, the image is like, you know, half half freed and half in, re- you know, half in relief and then halfway still in the stone. So you can really see this process. And I think it's just such a great image for this practice. It's like, you know, we're, we're, we're in this creative process and, um, You know, and I, and I just love this idea. It's not about creating something that's not there. It's really about this process of letting go, you know, um, shedding, shedding what we don't need, shedding what's extra. And the more we let go, the more we have, the more, the more peace we have, the more freedom we have, the more love and kindness and compassion is accessible to share with the world. So it's like in the process of letting go, we just keep getting so much and we keep giving. So it's like that open hand of letting go is what's able to actually receive. Um, so. Yeah, let's get the mic. Short. I actually really appreciate um, the two words, radical simplicity. Uh, Um, As you were talking about other things, I kept thinking how that's going to be useful for me um, because I feel like the word radical and simplicity would normally not pair at all for me because radical feels more aggressive and more extreme I mean it is extreme but simplicity is not right so I love that so I really appreciate that I think you know when you leave somewhere with even one sound bite yeah yeah I feel like that's the one today so I thank you for that great yeah thank you welcome um I love the word radical because I think I think radical, the etymology has something to do with the root, you know, returning to the root. It's like the core, the root. Um, And a radical simplicity is like this return, you know, and, and it is radical in our culture where there's so much, so much of everything. And um, it's, it's like a, it's a revolutionary kind of, um, turning, you know, re- to revolve and just to re- make a revolution to turn around from that um, so much, so much complication, so much proliferation, um, and to be willing to be simple. Um, so, yeah, so radical is great. I'm glad that resonated for you. So do you, is it on? Do do you have any um, advice or suggestions when, like I know that emotions only last 90 seconds, but sometimes they feel like they last hours. And I believe that I am stoking the fire of this, but it's hard when you don't feel like you're doing that, you know? So do you have any suggestions for how to find out, you know, what it is for self-realization of how you're contributing to this, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you. It's, you know, that 90-second thing is, is, I offer it as a little bit of a sort of, um, uh, 
controver- I don't know if it's controversial, but you know, it's a little bit of like, oh, okay. Um, and, and more like an invitation to, as you're saying, look, is there some way that I'm stoking this fire? And um, so sometimes we make the distinction, it's, it's a, you know, it's, you, can, you can check it out, but this distinction between the, the narrative of an emotion you know, often an emotion has some kind of story that's associated with it. And then the, as, as in the instructions to Bahia, the, sim- the simplicity of the emotion, which is itself a compound thing. You know, an emotion has an element that's cognitive, that's in the story. It has an energy to it, an energetic piece. It has a part, a physical piece. And so... Um, what I find very helpful is if a strong emotion, if, I, if there's enough awareness in me to notice that a strong emotion is present, to almost immediately see if I can drop into the body and locate that emotion in the body. And almost always I can. There's somewhere, even if it's um, subtle. Sometimes it's not subtle, but sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's subtle. But if I can locate it in the body, then begin to try to connect with that in the body with an attitude that's accepting, that's open, open, that's welcoming. It's, that's as much as possible, you know, simple in this way. Okay, th- there's a lot of fear right now. Where is that fear in the body? Oh, it's in the pit of the stomach, pit of the belly. Okay, what is it like to just... Um, bring those sensations into awareness. Well, it's unpleasant. (laughs) I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. Okay, can I get closer? Can I, can I get tuned in to the physicality of that? Okay, it's something that's happening. It's moving. It's shifting. The actual physical sensations aren't painful. They're not they're not pleasant, but they're not, you know, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't, um, and sometimes there's a way that the more we can stay with something that's embodied and physical, it starts to feel less personal. It starts to feel less like this is my pain. This is my emotion. And it's like this manifestation of the moment. It's like, okay, there's the sound of the cars, there's the weight of the body on the cushion, and there are these sensations that are just happening, or there's this, you know, um, you know, maybe it's a constriction or tightness in the chest or something, but it's like there's some almost strange way that it's not mine. It's you know, it's like when when I'm not actively stoking that fire and feeding the thoughts around it and the story and the, um, the, the, the selfing around it. It's just allowed to be what it is. Um, so sometimes I'll do that and then the thoughts will come up. Oh yeah, but blah, 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 blah. They, they did that and... Okay, noticing that and noticing it's just another... It's the, the, the conditioning around it is so strong that it, the fire has been stoked again. Okay, notice that and notice how does that manifest in the body. So it's almost like this continual checking in and becoming sensitive to the ways that um, we give fuel to it. And when we see the pain, when we really see how painful it is to be fueling something, that's not that helpful. That's not that, you know, it's probably not that kind to myself in, in some ways. Then there can be some, some shift and some softening of that. Um, but it's to, just to come to this process with a lot of patience, a lot of understanding, a lot of compassion, because that's really what loosens things. Um, to just criticize myself and like, ah, again? Um, sometimes we're really identified with the narrative or the story. Um, often when it's something that's negative about oneself, 
you know, it's like, I, okay, I can see that the joy is not me, the delight, the, the feelings of ease. Okay, I could see that that's not me. That's just this impersonal kind of thing. But um, shame, that's really me. That's really who I am. Guilt, what, what, what could be, you know, closer to that sense of self, that sense of who I am, than my guilt, right? You know, so to see the impersonality of that, to see the universality of that is so freeing because it's like that's also doesn't belong to me. That's also something that in some way is universal, is coming and going. It's this dream. It's this self-centered dream. Um, so just to notice which emotions do I tend to identify with? Do I tend to say, that's really me? You know, and um, you know, ju- just to notice and just to just to see the ways that we we grasp, that we cling, is is what is what enables freedom. You know, because if we don't see it, we're just we're just in it. We're just in the dream. Um, so I don't know if that gives you a few things to. Uh, to that that's very helpful and when you were saying all that i realized that when these emotions start at the very instant it starts i've already decided what its course is going to be which then its course actually is you know so i wish i never just hearing you giving an alternate approach i was like oh my goodness i realized that i do that so thank you yeah you're welcome So I've been um, in an inquiry about something, and I'm curious to hear perhaps your thoughts and take on this. So it's that fine line between dropping the resistance and the separation between who I am and the world and taking effective action when it's actually needed. I could perhaps meditate and find a place of less resistance with the situation. However, I've noticed there are times when situations are so unhealthy that staying in them, even from the best point of view, is not optimal. Yeah, yeah thank you. Thank you for your question. Um, I think that um, a big part of this practice is... Um, Allowing this simplicity and this this um, you know wisdom of non-separation to um, open us, open the heart, you know, in, in these ways, and and out of this openness, out of this like kind of naturalness, you know, um, we act. We need to act, and. Um, Sometimes how we act, sometimes the most compassionate thing and the most um, wise expression of non-separation is drawing a boundary, you know, and is saying um, to someone, this is not okay or whatever, or this situation is not healthy and not supportive. And um, so it's like, it, it won't always look like just like, oh yeah, I just accept everything and I, I don't do anything because it's all great. And, but it's really um, from that place of, yes, everything is one. And yes, um, everything is the self. And yes, um, our true nature is, is, is not separate from anything and not foreign to anything. From that place, um, we 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 can perceive what is skillful, what's wise, what is in harmony with goodness, kindness, compassion, um, honoring ethics, and what is actually um, um, in conflict with that. You know, um, one of the stories that just came to mind was what one of my teachers was. Um, 
in India and um, I think in the 70s and traveling around and I don't know, somehow got got mugged or someone, you know, was, you know, whatever. There was some kind of crime that was going on. And his teacher, who was this uh, older Indian woman, she said, when I tell you to be simple, it doesn't mean to be a simpleton. <laughs> and if someone tries to take your bag, just with all the compassion in your heart, give him a smack with your umbrella or something, you know, and like, <laughs> you know, so it doesn't mean let people walk all over you and let people, but it's like um, knowing what's skillful. And, we, and when, we, when we have clarity, when we're in touch and connected to who we are, then we make choices out of that level of awareness. You know, and our, our, the awareness, the, the kind of choices we make are informed by the, how, how aware we are. And so it's like, you know, with, you know, as a parent with a child, it's like um, sometimes we have to um, act in ways that make strong, firm boundaries. And it's actually um, not good for a child to not have feedback and boundaries. And, you know, they can become little monsters or something. I mean, it's like, in, in, in a way, those, those boundaries are a form of love. You know, and I think children test boundaries. So they want to know where, and boundaries make them feel safe. If they have firm boundaries, it's like they go, okay, I know, I can now relax. I can feel safe here. Because I know someone's watching, someone cares, someone is giving me what I can't give myself right now. And so I think children intuit that. And so um, be simple, but don't be a simpleton, (laughs) you know. And sometimes, um, you know, what what I sometimes tell my children is um, when I'm angry, or when I'm expressing anger, it doesn't mean I don't love you. I always love you. Um, but I'm, I'm giving you something uh, to work with right now because you're, you're doing something that we don't do. And, I, and, I, and, and it, doesn't, I, it doesn't affect my love for you, my care for you. And my younger child, she sometimes says, I know when Papa's angry, but then he, then he, uh, you know, uh, forgets about it or something, you know, or then he, you know, or then he lets it go. Like, you know, she, she has this sense of like, it's something that's, that's there in the moment for a purpose. And once it serves its purpose, it's, it's, it, it goes. And um, so, but I, I do think that the more connected we are and the more aware we are and in touch with who we are, then um, we're able to respond to the world with wisdom. And it won't always look one way or the other. But, but that's part of the connectedness, is this being in relationship, being in response. Um, so it doesn't mean just this passivity and just, yeah, bad things happen in the world and who cares, it's all empty. No, because it's empty, because we're, everything is interconnected, this interbeing, we want to act in the world. We care. Um, we care more. So, yeah, thank you. Okay, so thank you very much. And have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.